Our scripture this morning is Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, um, but we're going to read the entirety of the Ten Commandments leading up to it. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for sins, the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, preaching on the seventh commandment is a little bit different than preaching on all the rest. When we come to a commandment like the third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, our problem is that we just haven't thought very much about that topic. And so we have a lot to learn. But the seventh commandment deals with the topic of sex. And that's a subject we can hardly avoid in our society. Our problem with this commandment is not a lack of exposure to the subject, but it's a lack of biblical knowledge about it. In our sex-saturated culture, there is an ever-growing gulf between what the Bible teaches us about sex on one hand and what the world tells us we should believe on the other. And then you add to that that this is a subject that almost all of us come to with our own personal baggage. It's something that we, a lot of times we don't want to talk about it. We avoid talking about it. And so in church, it really only comes up every now and then the, in the occasional sermon. And you know, that is, that's kind of a recipe for disaster. It's no wonder there is so much confusion in the church regarding sex, regarding the seventh commandment especially. And so today, before we get into the details of all the things that this commandment prohibits or requires, I want us to start off by just talking basically about what the scripture teaches us about sex. What is the purpose? What is the meaning of sex? And then after that, we'll talk about what the commandment requires, and finally, how we should respond to it. 
So let's do that. Let's talk about the purpose and meaning of sex. A few weeks ago, you might have seen that the Mars Perseverance rover landed uh, on planet Mars. Did you guys see that? If you watched it online or if you saw it on the news, one of the first images you saw was this giant parachute opening up, helping the, the rover get to the ground. And it was this beautiful parachute. It had orange and, and yellow and a white pattern on it. And for most of us, when we saw that parachute, well, we just saw a parachute with a nice pattern on it, something that was, was colorful, maybe a little bit interesting, fun to look at. But otherwise, it was just a parachute. It, it was meaningless. But if you heard, a few hours later, some perceptive people on the internet noticed that that pattern on the parachute was not just a pattern, but it was actually a secret code that the NASA people had, had developed, a code that was, when decoded, uh, had a quote from Teddy Roosevelt that said, dare mighty things. That's pretty interesting, right? Even though we were all looking at the same thing, most of us completely missed the fact that there was a message there. In a similar way, most people in our world have missed that there is a message that sex is intended to communicate. We've missed the fact that there is a profound meaning behind it. There's a message that it is trying to tell the world. But thankfully for us, we don't have to be some kind of crazy master code breakers to understand what that message is. All we have to do is open up God's word. As early as Genesis chapter 2, actually, in one of the first pages of scripture, we read this. At the creation of Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, there's a marriage ceremony and Adam declares to his wife, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So when God creates man and woman, we see this first marriage. And in this marriage, Adam makes a vow to his wife. He says, this is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. And right here at the beginning of the Bible, we see that God has a purpose for marriage. It is what we would call the, the one flesh principle. The one flesh principle says that a man and a woman are intended to be joined together for a lifelong covenant with each other. Now let's talk about sex again. In the world, there have been some competing views on sex and its purpose. In the history of the church, you can find ancient thinkers who would tell you that sex only has one purpose, and that purpose is procreation. In fact, you can even find people who would say that it was God's intention before the fall that, that sex had no pleasure involved whatsoever. It was just a task to be accomplished to fill the earth. Now compare that to the common view of sex today. That sex is primarily something for pleasure. That it's really 
It's not much more than a recreational activity. And that procreation is not the purpose of sex, but actually quite the opposite. It is the unintended consequence that should be avoided at all costs. But Scripture presents sex in a very different light, in a different manner. Well, it is true, of course, right? We know sex produces children. Sex is enjoyable. But we shouldn't confuse those characteristics of sex with the purpose of sex. See, the purpose of sex is this. God created it to be a covenant ratifying and a covenant renewing act between a husband and a wife. God created sex to be a covenant ratifying and a covenant renewing act between a husband and a wife. Now, let me break that down a bit because that might sound kind of strange. But throughout Scripture, we have this idea of covenant. The covenant is, covenants are the way that God interacts with people. A covenant is a promise, but it's more than a promise. It's a formal agreement. It's a kind of of contract. And these covenants, they are always sealed with a sign. So maybe you remember that story in Genesis 15 where God is making a covenant with Abraham. He, remember, he brings him outside, and he tells him to look up at the stars, and he says, I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than all the stars in the sky, and, and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. Remember that? And then Abraham asks him, well, how can I know that you'll do that? Well, God tells him by giving him a, a covenant and a covenant ratifying act. And you can read about that in Genesis 15. It says, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. So Abraham brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite to each other. And then, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Okay, so what's going on right there? God makes a promise, and then he gives this sign, this act. And this act, it, it signified... The terms of the vows, the terms of the promise he was making. So he said, essentially, with with these animals cut in half, God passed through the middle of them, and he said, if I break the terms of my promise, then may the same thing that has just happened to these animals happen to me. There's lots of these, lots of these kinds of covenant signs in Scripture. There's circumcision, that's one of them. There's, There's baptism, that's one of them. But covenant signs always come with these covenant acts. Well, marriage is also a covenant. Marriage is a promise made between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, before the Lord. It's a covenant where they declare that they will be one flesh until death. And the covenant sign that comes with that promise 
is sex. It's the consummation of those vows. But it's not just the consummation, right? It's not something you just do once. It's also a covenant renewal act. That every time it is repeated, we are reminded of the vows we make. Whenever a husband and a wife come together, they reassert those promises. It's an act that symbolizes mutual self-giving. It's about service. It's about intimacy. It's about all of these promises that a husband and a wife have made to one another. I heard one pastor who compared it to the Lord's Supper, which is also another covenant act. But he said, just like when we come to the, the Lord's table, it's not just something you do once, right? It's something we repeat over and over again for repair of relationship, for recommitment to our relationship, reminders of the promises that we have made and the promises that God has made to us. And sex is like that in marriage. Okay, so I wouldn't be surprised if this is new stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if, if maybe we've never thought about sex like this, that we've never thought about the fact that sex actually has a meaning, that it's not just an activity but it's an act with a message behind it. A message that is declaring this one flesh promise a husband and wife have made to each other. But you know, scripture goes even further than that. It says that the covenant of marriage, the lifelong connection between a husband and a wife, not only declares their one flesh union, but, but it actually declares God's love for his people. Ephesians 5, it says, it quotes Genesis, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That union, that one flesh union, is intended to be an unbreakable one that communicates God's faithfulness. It's supposed to tell the world about God's unbreakable love for his people. And it's kind of a glorious thing, right? It's, it's a tremendous blessing that God has chosen to give this message through sex something that is actually desirable, something that's enjoyable, something that brings pleasure and delight, and when God wills it, something that brings children so that we can build a family. But we have to recognize that there is a meaning. There is a message behind sex. It's covenant-making. It's covenant-renewing, and it is meant to be a constant reminder of that unbreakable, one flesh vow between a husband and a wife, but also in a greater sense, God's unbreakable vow to us. And if you understand that, then you instantly have a new appreciation for the seriousness of the seventh commandment. If you understand that, you realize why this commandment is such a big deal. So let's talk about that. What does this commandment require of us? You shall not commit adultery. 
Okay, let's start with the obvious. This command prohibits literal adultery. It prohibits a married person from sleeping with another person who is not their spouse. One of the things that amazes me about this commandment is that even in our society today where where sex has been so devalued, where it has lost so much meaning, adultery is still a pretty big-time offense, isn't it? Pew Research did a survey recently that found that still the vast majority of people in our country would agree with the statement, it is always wrong for a married person to have sex with someone who is not their spouse. Why would that be? Why in a world where sex has become so pervasive would we still hold on to this, quote, traditional idea? Well, it's because what we just read. This commandment is tied all the way back to the way that God created us. See, you and I, we are made for an eternal loving relationship with God. And our hearts have been shaped around that. You and I are always seeking out that one love relationship, that one place where we can be known and where we can know someone else. Now, ultimately, only God is going to be able to meet that need. No person on earth can meet that need for you, but... Marriage is a shadow of that. Marriage is a gift that he's given us so that we can experience a piece of that. So we can know that unbreakable and that secure love relationship that he offers us. And when that gets violated, when that gets broken, when someone that we have promised ourselves to given a lifelong commitment of union with them, when they go and unite themselves with someone else, nobody needs to be told that's wrong. Everybody in the world just knows it. It's a law that is written on our hearts. Adultery is one of the most destructive things that one person can do to another in this world. And sadly, I probably don't need to tell you that. You've probably seen it. Whether it's a a couple that's close to you, or maybe, I don't know, maybe this is a, a dark chapter in your own story. You know this reality that adultery, something that people might dismiss as a moment of weakness, a small mistake, It creates a crack in the foundation of a marriage that destroys everything around it. Homes are broken. Sometimes entire communities fall apart. Children's lives are forever altered. And that couple's trust between one another, it takes years to recover if it ever does. And again, that is because this law goes down deep. 
when it's broken, it impacts our belief. It, it makes us question whether we can really be known, whether really we can know someone else. We question it not just about our spouse, but we begin to question it about God as well. Adultery is a terrible offense to God. But this command, it goes a lot further than just literal adultery. And we know that because, because Jesus told us, right? He told us straight from his mouth in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, do you notice in that, that Jesus, he makes this leap from literal adultery all the way to something as common as a lustful look. There's a lot of stuff in between there, right? There's a lot of stuff in between adultery and a glance. Yeah. And guess what? That means all of that stuff falls under this commandment. See, Jesus said that because he knows our hearts. And he recognizes our tendency to try and push the boundaries when it comes to sex. To try and look for the loopholes, right? A single man might approach this verse and he says, well, because I'm not married, well, technically, me having sex is not adultery. Or a couple, they might look at this command and they might say, well, I'm gonna, we're going to try to go as far as we can without crossing the line. But Jesus takes that line and he shows us where it really is. He moves it so far back that we're all forced to just admit that we are guilty in the face of the seventh commandment. So maybe instead of us just trying to go through a list of all the things that get prohibited by this commandment, we should think about how the Westminster puts it. We should think about it positively. And here's what, what they say. The seventh commandment requires us to be sexually pure in body, in mind, inclinations, words, and actions, and to maintain purity in ourselves and others. The seventh commandment requires us to be sexually pure in body, mind, inclination, words, and actions, and to maintain that purity in ourselves and others. So we're not only called here to avoid sinful actions, but positively, we're supposed to pursue purity and protect the purity in other people. That means this commandment could extend down to things as simple as the way we dress, the subjects that we talk about, the songs, TV shows that we recommend to other people. It's extensive. And I guess this is as good of a moment as any to address probably one of the greatest challenges posed to us right now. 
which has been the rise of pornography in our country. Practically every man and many women I know have been exposed extensively to pornography on the internet. The advent of smart devices, it's made it even worse. Now, in biblical times, sexual immorality was just as rampant as it is today. If you go back and you read Paul's letters, you can find some of the things that he addresses are actually pretty extreme, taboo kind of things. But that said, you know, when Paul was writing those letters, he didn't have to struggle with the temptation not to flip it over because the back of it was covered with pictures of naked women. And that kind of is what we deal with today, right? The same devices that we work on, that we communicate with, that we carry around in our pockets all the time are potential windows into all kinds of temptation. And for many of us, it takes constant effort to avoid that temptation. Constant accountability, software and, and expenses, but, but we have to do that. We must pursue that kind of purity. And the main reason we must is because God tells us that it's something he despises. It's the seventh commandment. But I'll add to that, another reason we have to do that is because it is a way that we love our neighbors. We are commanded not only to protect our own purity, but to protect the purity of other people as well. And you may be able to convince yourself that looking at images is really not harming anyone. Right? Those are just pictures, far removed and abstract. But you know that's not true. Those are real human beings with eternal souls who God has commanded you to protect. But instead, you use them as objects for your consumption. And I think that is the real core of this commandment. How do we view our fellow human beings? Are they created in the image of God, reflecting his glory? Eternal souls to be protected and valued and cherished, or are they tools for our own pleasure? Outside of a lifelong, one flesh covenant, outside of that kind of commitment to love another person more than you love yourself for the rest of your life, there is no way to gain sexual pleasure from another person without dehumanizing them, without turning them into an object. Outside of a lifelong one flesh covenant, there is no way to gain sexual pleasure from another person without dehumanizing them. So simply, this commandment requires that we live lives of celibacy when we're single. That we live lives of sacrificial, 
lifelong commitment in marriage and that we love our neighbor by protecting their purity as well as our own. That's what it requires. So how should we respond? This is actually a pretty difficult command for us. It's a difficult command to preach on because sexual sin also, it tends to be hidden sin. But if there's one thing I'm certain of, after years in ministry, I'm certain that this is not just a problem that exists out there. This is a problem for the church. This is a problem in the church. This is something we are struggling with. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now when we read that passage, we often focus on the lists of sin in that passage, but I want to especially draw your attention to the words, and that is what some of you were. See, those words remind us that God is in the business of redeeming us out of sexual sin. You know, it, it goes as far as this. The story of our salvation, when it's told in Scripture, is often told as the story of God's love for adulterous people. The book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets, God tells his prophet to go and marry a woman who then commits adultery, who even has children with another man, who possibly even becomes a prostitute. And in the middle of that book, God says to him, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. See, God does not turn away from his children, but we often turn away from him. We have ruined ourselves with immorality. We have harmed ourselves and others with our lust. We've experienced the pain and the grief and the sorrow that comes from sexual sin. We've been the perpetrators of it. We've been the victims of it. But God does not turn up his nose when he sees us. 
he shows us love. Again. Again. And ultimately, he did that through Jesus. In the book of Ephesians, we read about Jesus as a husband and his love for his bride. And who's his bride? Well, his bride's the church. His bride is you. His bride is us. And Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present himself to her as a radiant church without stain or blemish or any wrinkle, but holy and blameless. You see, that verse, it means that whatever your past is, no matter what you might be going through right now, no matter how many times you have failed and fallen in your lust, this is the future that Christ has for you if you will only come, if you will only repent, if you'll only follow him, he will make you radiant. He will make you pure, without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish. Now, some of you might be here thinking, I do want that. But I don't know where to start. You think, Pastor, I've been in this church a long time. And honestly, I'm, I'm terrified of what would happen if my sin was exposed. And if that's where you are today, I want to encourage you to say that we are not here to stand in judgment over anyone. This is not a room filled with righteous saints. This is a room full of rescued sinners. Do not believe the lie that there is no grace for you. And don't remain in the prison that you have trapped yourself in. Don't spend another day there. This is a safe place. We want to see you restored, not destroyed. There is nothing that you've done or that has been done to you that can't be covered by the blood of Christ. Amen. So I want to invite you. Come talk to me or talk to Pastor Robert or, or talk to Becky or, or, or Cindy or, or anyone. But don't go another day in the darkness. And finally, I want to end here on a positive note. Because when it comes to sex, the one message I want you to hear today is that God wants more for you than the world does. Amen. God wants more for you than the world does. I know it can sound extremely confining, extremely limiting that God would reserve sex only for a man and a woman inside of the context of a marriage. But the truth is, what God has for you is way better. He wants more for you than just a fling. He wants a depth of love, a depth of intimacy and connection that is truly going to be mind-blowing. He wants that kind of safety 
and security that you cannot possibly experience without a covenant. So if you're unmarried in this room, I want you to know that this limitation, it's for your joy. And if marriage is something that you desire, believe me, I will join you in praying for that, that God will bring you that spouse. But in the meantime, I want you to remember that, that Christ himself, Jesus proves that marriage is not necessary to be a completely fulfilled person. No one has ever been more complete than Jesus. And he was single. He never had sex. He was lacking nothing. And finally, to the married couples who are here, I just want to say, I don't want us to miss the fact that, that we got a lot of lucky guys in this room. Right? Amen? We got a lot of lucky guys in this room. Now, marriage is hard. I know it. Sin can sometimes cloud our vision. Silly arguments can sometimes drive us apart. But I do not want you to leave this room without praising God for the beautiful souls that God has put on your arm today. And I want both of you to remember the vows that you made to one another. I want you to know that you have what everybody wants. So don't let your sin keep you from seeing it. You have that relationship everybody else desires. And so I want to send us out of here this morning with a blessing from the book of Proverbs. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of covenant, for the gift of your faithfulness and your steadfast promises to us. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our sin. We pray that you would give us the boldness to come out of the shadows. God, we pray that this church would be a place of healing for sinners. We pray, God, that you would forgive us, that you would restore us, and that we would find our delight in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.